Hello and welcome to Let's Talk About It, conversations with MRU counselors on managing your mental health, succeeding in school, and everything else you're too scared to ask. I'm your host, Julie Patton, and in today's episode, I'm sitting down with Kelly Waters Radcliffe to talk a bit about identifying values, understanding emotions, and choosing therapy. Kelly has been a therapist for about 20 years. He says one of the most important things he's learned is that two plus two doesn't always equal four. There is no one size fits all when it comes to therapy. People heal from similar traumas in many different ways. It takes thoughtfulness and mindfulness to heal your inner self. I joined Kelly in his office at MRU to talk about this. Why do you think counseling is important for students? Well, I, I don't presume it's important for everybody, but um, life as a student is already really out of balance. Lots of things weigh on a person just over the course of normal, normal quote unquote, school. And, uh, you know, this particular bunch of school is happening during a pandemic in, in a world of uncertainty. So it just it piles on a person and... And, and with all of the above in mind, I'm just really gratified that we have services for students. I don't recollect that when I was growing up. I just suffered with my my own issues in university and, and could really have maybe have benefited myself if I'd known that these services were out there. So in short, uh, life is already difficult. A lot's at stake in school. There's a lot of money and time and energy put in here. And we just want to keep the vehicle moving so people can get to where they want to go. Yeah. That's why counseling is important. And you've written that needs are soil conditions for well-being and anxiety, depression as security alarms. It's a different way of looking at it. And I was wondering if you could expand on this concept. I start with the presumption that whatever a person's experiencing makes sense. It, it has to make sense. Maybe not in linear logic, but it has to make sense because it's happening. It's when we're at a distance where things maybe not don't make make sense. Uh, I think we're seeing that playing out all over the world right now. For at a distance, we can hurl insults at each other. We can make claims about each other. We can hate each other. But it's harder to hate someone when you're standing really close and looking them in the eye. When we listen to a person's story and we listen to their efforts and their responses to living, their suffering does make sense. And it makes sense, I've found, as a, as a response to the conditions of living. Now, the plant metaphor, uh, the idea that you don't have to tell a plant how to grow. If it has the right nutrients in the soil, if it has just the right sunshine or the right amount of moisture, a plant will just grow on its own, responding to, uh, to its environment. So not every dandelion looks the same, but it's within the dandelion to be a dandelion. We just kind of have to get out of the way. And, and I think people are kind of like that. Um, when the conditions are around them are just right, we can heal when the conditions are right enough, not, they don't have to be perfect. When they're right enough, we are resilient. We are connected to our life. We're motivated. Uh, so many times in this room, people are like, if I were just motivated, I would, I would go and do this thing. Or if I had self-esteem, I would, then I would live. <laughs> Basically, I'm putting off life until I have those things. Like we can go get them from the store. We're just going to go to the self-esteem aisle, go to the motivation aisle and get that box of motivation. Now I will do my homework. But when you get really close to something like, let's say, procrastination, which we often take as 
some kind of deficit in willpower or deficit in our character or laziness. Get really close to it. It looks more like a protest, like it's responding to something. It's saying something's not quite right here. Um, my needs are not being met or too much is being asked of me or just something is going awry. And so if, if we're looking at something like procrastination as a, as a response, then what is it responding to if not the territory around it? And I would say that the same holds true for anxiety and depression. And then all of the other things that we do in response to those feelings, like addiction or um, ang anger and violence or withdrawal from life. So our feelings, I guess, always make sense. They make sense as a response to the conditions around us. And if we listen to them, they can tell us a little bit about what a better, what a better set of conditions could be. And I wanted to ask you, you did therapeutic work in the past that was based in experiential learning. I was wondering if you could expand on what this type of therapy is. Well, all life is experience. And one of the signature elements of problems is that, uh, that the experience is just repeated again and again. We're having the same experience with uh, another person or a situation that keeps us trapped. So if a problem is this repeated experience, what we want to do is create some novel experience. So if, for instance, you're trapped in procrastination or withdrawal or shyness or hesitation or uncertainty, you could start to draw conclusions about yourself and what it's possible for you to do. And if we're drawing those premature conclusions, it's really kind of a tragedy in itself. So what we want to do is create some other experiences or other performance spaces so you can sense of yourself again. So I used to work in a place where we had a ropes course and we had lots of access to the outdoors. We were on a lake. There was all sorts of uh, uh, mountains and stuff around us. And we had people working for us who had certifications in paddling and hiking, etc. So if you have a person, let's say, stuck in addiction and... Um, and uh, street-involved lifestyles, for, for instance, and then you dangle them off a ropes course for a while, they're going to have a novel experience of themselves. Or if you walk them up a mountain and they, and they look off a mountain for the first time, they suddenly have to reconcile their old self with this new experience of standing on mountains. Like, I guess I'm the sort of person that climbs mountains now. How am I supposed to, how am I supposed to understand this in the context of my life? Maybe I'm more than I thought I was. So experiential learning really is about creating an edge, an edge that you step off of into, into something that is yet unknown about you. We tend to just practice the same day over and over again. If we can get, if we can start practicing different days, we might find out more about who we are. And, and so I, I bring, I, I don't have in this small space a whole lot of experiential learning that I can do, but I assume that people are stepping into their lives and there's plenty of experiences to be had about out there. My job is to, with hope, interest people in living a little bit differently, to find new sorts of evidence of who they are, to experience themselves and to expand the perimeter of their identity. Sounds pretty grandiose, but we do it every day. I was wondering if you had any examples as to how students in their everyday lives could maybe push themselves a little more and maybe they can't quite hang from ropes or climb mountains, but how could they push themselves to experience life a little differently? Well, we could threaten them. I'm, I'm only half joking there. So, so many people, they, they fuel their, their vehicle with this low-octane fuel, like fear, fear of consequences or fear of failure, um, fear of losing money. I've invested in this and now I'm going to lose the money, so I just better keep going. And I guess, you know, that gets us through. Uh, so, I mean, to, you've noticed by now that I can't answer a question directly. But my answer to this, is, it is indirect, but it, it lands. How do we get people to 
become interested in their lives and to expand their living and to experience themselves differently. Well, in my estimation, and, and my colleagues, you know, we all have similar and different views. I'm interested now suddenly to find out what they would say. But um, what I get very interested in is what people care about. We are mo more motivated when we're rooted in what we care about, i.e. our values, our needs, our strengths. If we have a venue in which our needs are met and we're living in line with our values and our strengths get to be utilized, we get to feel effective in our lives. It becomes possible to make meaningful and motivated goals. This is expanding who, 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 who we are. That, so in my conversations, I'm always listening for those things, needs, values, strengths, and goals. Yeah. If, if it's anything other than those, then we're probably getting motivated by uh, consequences of some sort. And we're just never stronger, more connected, more energetic about life than when we were plugged into the four, those four things. Did that answer your question, sort of? <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Um, and it kind of it comes into my next question, because I was going to ask you, what are the ingredients needed for a person to gain a better sense of self? You just brought to mind a metaphor that always springs into my mind in this room, which is that of a refrigerator. And a refrigerator is, is my fridge is full of various ingredients, and yours is too. And some of those ingredients are similar. Probably a lot of them are similar, but maybe some of them are unique. And so we're each carrying these ingredients around with us, and it becomes important for us to like, figure out what recipes go with what we have. Not necessarily go shopping for new ones, although we can, but to figure out what, what recipes um, contribute to who we are. So what are the ingredients? Well, I can't answer that. Um, I can make some general statements about basic needs, but they look different in everybody's life. So I would say your way of expressing autonomy or uh, finding belonging or... or um, finding venues for competency would look different than mine. So if I were to prescribe for you the exact way, it probably wouldn't fit you. But what I'm aiming at here is kind of more of a one-size-fits-one approach rather than a one-size-fits-all. I know that when I'm the least effective, I'm trying to do a one-size-fits-all approach. When I'm most effective, I'm listening keenly to a person's story, I'm listening to their experiences, and I'm, I'm listening particularly for uh, where autonomy, belonging, and competency can land in their uh, circumstances. So <laughs> you, you, you hope for me to say what would work for everybody, but that, that's what I know is it doesn't work. Would people be able to figure out those needs on their own, or would it benefit them more to go to therapy and have someone else maybe point out things for them that they didn't understand before? Oh, I like that question. Um, well, plenty of people don't go to therapy and do just fine, and plenty of people who go to therapy do just fine. So for instance, when I said autonomy, belonging, competency, that's to name needs in a specific way. Um, and to name a thing, like many of my clients will, will know this because I've said this or we've talked about this in conversation, to name something that makes it more visible. And so every therapist has this psychological language they'll, they'll bring to the session. And the words that they use will help clients see their lives differently. And my work, I work a lot with needs and values. And so I'll use those words so people can see them in their own lives. Did that, does that get to a, mm -hmm. an answer somewhere? So just starting to notice your needs, notice your values and pay attention to them to help heal your inner self. That's exactly it. That if we're to really recover, what we're trying to recover here is a sense of focus and attention. Our attention is really the only thing that we have and it's so divided already. So how do we recruit our own attention? And how do we, on what basis do we make choices? 
if we're making them for some external external force, then we're kind of losing um, we're losing out. So to me, naming values and needs, it allows a person the ability to steer their own vehicle and to go places that they're uniquely wanting to go. When you name something, you can see it. And that's just the way it is. When, when we see something, we're more able to talk about it and, and figure it out and play with it, experiment and evaluate it. And, and so I think naming something that we care about is a, is a very motivating thing to do. It's a very meaningful thing to do. We want to get to living meaningfully. And if we're just making to-do lists, um, New Year's resolutions, or, or we're picking up books at Indigo about how to be a good person, then those lists have nothing to do with us. We want to make projects of ourselves that have everything to do with what we care about. So the more we listen for what we care about, the better the better off we're going to be making our choices. You think then when you start naming your needs, you start listing your values, you have to start letting some go that they're not as important? Ooh, I've not, no one's ever posed that question. I suppose that's the heart of a dilemma when you have more than one need or value ask, vying for your attention. And, um, so yeah, there, it could be. Um, I haven't really found that too much though. What I have found is that it's just hard to find the right words. And so you might find you might start out with one word and then replace it with another word that's just a better 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 container for you. I want it to be useful. Any language that we take on board should be useful. And what I mean by useful is that it accounts for our lived experience. We're often measuring ourselves up to words and ideas and um, discourses about being a person that are too small for us. They end up amputating us. Uh, we find that all the time. That's what all of the isms are about. Uh, sexism and racism and ableism, all of these things create vocabularies for talking about ourselves that cut ourselves off from who we are. We're not having to usually choose which values we live by. It's possible to, like for instance, it's possible to want belonging. It's possible to want autonomy and possible to want competency all at the same time. Um, and to have lives where maybe in a given context, one is a higher priority and another one recedes. Is there a daily practice that people could use to gain a better sense of their mind and self? So I wouldn't say that there's any one thing that I would recommend to someone um, because again, the one size fits all thing tends to, like I, if I were to, for instance, start meditating in a certain way, I might experience a lot of failure, but maybe meditation is not my thing. Maybe walking is my thing. Or maybe for someone who is a really exercise oriented, getting to the gym is their meditation. So it really is about finding the kinds of things that work with a person, where what they are are already getting energized by and what they know to, to be helpful. Apart from that, I would say, no, I don't have a specific thing I would recommend. When looking into counseling, what should people do to find a therapist that will best suit their needs? Interview therapists. Like it, when you buy a car, you, um, you go and look at cars. And as much as it sucks to say, just going to a therapist and assuming it'll work is like not, not being a critical consumer. Therapists interview clients, but I think that clients should interview therapists to find out what the, what the fit is. Is this a person that I can trust or do they seem to get me? Is there, is, is there a way of understanding lining up with what I believe? And so if I were walking into a therapist's office, I'd want to know what they believe about things like what problems are. I'd want to know what they think rem remedies are. I'd want to um, have an understanding of uh, what they thought health was and, or and what their attitudes about um, disorder are. 
So I would bring those questions in and, and hold them accountable, I guess, to find out. Um, because each therapist is a person. And we have our own histories. And we have our own experiences. And the ideas we take on board, the theories or the uh, therapeutic modalities that we take on board, are, are chosen on the basis of who we are. So my choice to work in a certain way is just as much about me as it is about, let's say, uh, science. It, another way of putting it is that uh, that therapy is a relationship, and the therapist is part of that relationship. So I'd be I'd be just getting to know the therapist a little. Before someone decides to go into counseling, what are some ideas or questions they should meditate on to make the most of their experience? Well, there's lots of ways to have a good experience. I've had plenty of people when I say something really wise like, "So, what brings you in today?" Um, a lot of people say, "I don't know." <laughs> and that that is a good start uh, that is a good start but sometimes people come in and they have three things that they want to talk about uh, some people come in, come in and talk about a future that they want but they're not really sure how to get there so um, I think that just a willingness to go is probably a good place to start but if, they, if you were to ask questions of yourself to because sometimes the it's hard to get into counseling and you have to wait a little time to make it really worth your while I'd, I would sit down and say what is the struggle I'm having? Where does it occur? How is it affecting me? What areas of life is it really affecting me? And some version of this question, how does it make sense to me that I got where I am right now? Is there anything about it that makes sense? Now, not everybody's going to be able to answer those things beforehand. Sometimes we just unfold them in the conversation. But starting the ball rolling in that direction, I think, is a pretty good thing. Because when we name something, we can do something about it. And when we name our problem, or the struggle, or the dilemma that we're facing, when we name it, it becomes more possible to move it. So, yes, number one, don't feel under any pressure to do this. But number two, it could, it could start the ball rolling if you were to ask those sorts of questions. That was Kelly Waters Radcliffe, a therapist with MRU Counseling. Thanks again for listening to Let's Talk About It. I'm Julie Patton, and this episode was produced by Kai Ray. This series is powered by Shaw and a part of the Community Podcast Initiative based out of MRU. It was produced on Treaty 7 territory, where we are grateful for the opportunity to create, learn, and grow. Since mental health is a universal issue, we hope all voices can enjoy the land with continued respect and appreciation for the people who call it home. Special thanks to our partner, MRU Counseling Services, and of course, to Kelly Waters Radcliffe for joining me. You can learn more about MRU Counseling and book a free appointment at mru.ca slash counseling. That's counseling with two L's. You can also follow them on Instagram at mrulivewell for more resources and wellness events on campus. Be sure to subscribe to the show to get to know MRU's counselors and hopefully learn a little more about yourself. And don't forget, if you're struggling, reach out and don't be afraid to talk about it.